guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. Welcome to Mimosa Sisterhood, a podcast that celebrates women. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Melissa, and you're listening to Mimosa Sisterhood, where we pop bottles, get drizzy drunk, and celebrate women's stories, past and present. Today, we've got a women's history episode for you, and holy motherfucking smokes, the women that we are covering today are phenomenal. We cover two women who have made massive impacts on society, their countries, the world, and they've left major stamps in history as fucking badass women. However, I had never heard about either of these women until recording today's episode. These are the things that crush my soul but make me so much happier that I have this podcast and that I can share these stories with you guys because these women are amazing and they deserve to be known. So I really hope you enjoy learning about them and I hope you feel some inspiration about how fucking kick-ass they are. Today I've got another co-host with me and you've heard her before, you've met her before, none other than the amazing Jordan Redwine. She's been on the podcast a couple of times now, and I'm telling you now, get used to it because she's sticking around for the long haul. I mean, as long as I can keep her to myself. But Jordan has her own podcast. It's called A Novel Adaptation. You've heard us chat about it before. It's an awesome podcast about book-to-movie adaptations. So if we have any book lovers out there, movie lovers out there, you'll love her show. Be sure to check it out. But today, she's on my podcast, and we have a blast, as usual. We've got a lot of hilarious chit-chat, some great perspectives on the women's history, and we enjoy some great cocktails and wine together. So before we get into the episode, I'm just going to cover the basics that you've heard 3,000 times before, but I know there are still a few of you out there who have not left a rating or a review, and I just want to remind you how easy it is, how quick it is, and how impactful it is to the success of this podcast. I'm sure you guys have heard all about algorithms. They are a pain in the ass, and they ruin everybody's lives. Well, guess what? If we get more podcast ratings and reviews, Apple Podcasts will see that. The algorithm will see that. And they'll be like, hold up, hold up, hold up. People like this podcast. Let's promote it. Let's share it with more people. Let's put it on the new and noteworthy page and let's hype this shit up. So if you have some time today and you haven't left a review yet, it would mean the absolute world if you could do that for me. All right, cool. Well, we've got a super beefy episode today, so I'm not going to waste any more time here. But before I go, I just want to remind you guys how much I love you, how special each and every listener is to me. I see you guys on Instagram. I see you guys in my podcast statistics, and it truly just means the world every month to know that there are people out there listening. So just know that I see you and I love you and it truly means the world to have you here with me listening to these episodes and learning about women. So thanks a bunch and I hope once again you enjoy this episode and I'll see you on the other side. 
Jordan, hello. Welcome back to the pod. Oh, hi, Melissa. How you doing? <laughs> Sounds like we just joined a game show. Oh, my God. And I am so excited to be here. It is an honor. An I just honor. I just called you out of the stands and you came running down to the stage, just skipping away. And I have the energy of Aaron Paul at The Price is Right. Like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm dying. Well, for everybody else out there, we just spent the past 30 minutes figuring out how to set up podcast equipment. Technology is difficult. Look, you have you have your podcast desk where you have your microphone and your wires and then you come in and find out that wires are mysteriously missing and you're like, well, shit. And then you got to dig through uh, boxes of those, uh, you, you know, everyone has those random charger oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. cord boxes and I'm going through like, mm-hmm. going, all right, crappy headphones, uh, uh, connector to my good headphones. Like, I just need something. So... You know what? I blame Apple for all of this drama because every time they come out with a new device, there's a thousand new cords and chargers and this and that. It's freaking annoying. And you know what else occurred to me recently? I like finally upgraded my iPhone to like a newer version in the past month or so. And when it arrived, I had this like flashback moment where I was like, oh my God, they don't give us headphones anymore. Do you remember back in the day? I don't know if you're an iPhone user, but back in the, when they first started, you got a pair of headphones with every damn iPhone that you bought. Now they I, don't do that. I am an Android baby. I've always have been. I always will be. You're smart, especially I now mean, that I'm complaining so much about Mac. <laughs> Look, I, I, I enjoy my MacBook. It does what it needs to do, and it looks slick as hell. I got to appreciate them for that. But um, I've never had an iPhone, and from what I hear from other people, like, my problem with my Android right now is that it's like almost four years old and it's slow and it's running out of space. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest complaint. And obviously I need an upgrade. That's it. Like, that's <laughs> true. But True I'm that. one of those old people that it's just like, well, I have to re-download all my apps and then uh-huh. log into all my apps. And it's just like, I'm procrastinating so hard on that. I know. And then they recently just did the like, I don't, you probably don't know this, but with the iPhone, like it used to have a button that you would open your home screen and it would like detect your fingerprint to open it. Sure, so they sure. got rid of the button and now you like swipe up and it like detects your face. And it's just weird, especially after I just finished the series You. Did you watch that? Um, so I ha- I have many things to say. <laughs> I'm gonna push my. So I I watched the first season of You. Thought it was fine, but the book was obviously better. Oh, like the I didn't book- even know it was a book. Uh, it's a series, Melissa. Leave it to you to know the books first. Yeah. Well, I stayed up the first book. I stayed up until four a.m. and what? Because it was so good. It was it was a work night too. So that was uh, that was a thing I do not regret to this day. Uh, but. Of course, the book was better. And then I read the second book and wasn't a fan. Interesting. So I didn't opt to finish watch, uh, to continuing watching the second season of The You, even though in like the last five minutes, I know the book and the mo- and the TV show just went vit. Mm-hmm. So I know it's different. But since the second book didn't impress me, there's a third book either coming out or is out right now. I'm just kind of like. Very eh. interesting. So that's how well. What tripped me out in the third you was them continually to use the iPhone face recognition to like hack uh. into people's phones. Which I mean, I guess you could have also done with the button and the thumb print, but just like it really kind of made me feel weird. <laughs> I, like, I mean, that whole show was meant to make you feel skeevy, <laughs> and 
They do a bang up job. Well, I will say this. I thought, first of all, I loved season one of you. From somebody who's never read any of the books, didn't even know there were books, I would say the first season was fantastic. A major hooker. Couldn't wait for the second to come out. The second, I loved. It was really good. It took a wild-ass twist and spin that you were not expecting, and then it got you really excited for season three. Season three was not as good as one or two. Oh, that's such a bummer. Yes. I've heard there's a lot about cages. Well, there's it's, cages in all of them. Oh, okay, um, sure, sure. Joe's always got to yes. have his cage in his basement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, yep, cages in every series. But this one was just like a bit of a stretch, I would okay. say. Took it a little too far. Right. The first two were believable. They seemed realistic enough. Like, okay, we're dealing with a real psycho here. The third one was like, all right, somebody needed to figure out how to like really elaborate on this story and take it to another level. But when they do that, they go too far and then it's not as realistic anymore. It jumped the shark is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. That's, oh, that's and so, so now it ended with like a hook that there will be a fourth season. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to watch it because I'm one of those people where like if I've seen all of them, I have to keep going. <laughs> I, 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 me too. I will hold on to a show, even though I can see that it's really going down the toilet. Going, but no, it was so good at one point. It's got a rebound. It's got a rebound, and it never rebounds ever. I'm trying to think of an example of one that might have rebounded, and nothing's coming to mind. Um, but yeah, like you know, Supernatural. I had to stop at like season nine. I, I stayed for four seasons, going, it's got to be better. It's got to be better. And I'm like, going, oh my god, no. And then, uh. Um, oh, Game of Thrones, where I kept uh-huh. thinking, yes, I just, as long as I make it to the end, it's got to get better. Well, and the end was the worst. Oh, the end was terrible. And I'm doing the rewatch right now just because it's out in the background while I'm working. It's easy to keep on there. And then I stopped to watch the fight scenes because I'm like now analyzing fights in my free time. And, uh, <laughs> um, oh, wait, because of your, your side hobby, right? Right, yeah. Okay, we're, we, I was already planning on bringing this up. So oh, okay. this is a fantastic segue, but I want you to finish telling me about the fights in Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, I mean, other than that, other than that, I like the fights are still great. And I'm like watching going up, down. Three, four, five, one, two, and I'm just I'm enjoying recognizing all of that. Uh, but it's, now it's just making me angry. We watch it because we're going. Yes, this show was so good. It oh was so God. good. And now I just have to get. I look forward to it just being trite, trite, just turns just terrible. Okay, tell us about your kung fu fighting. <laughs> and we were all kung fu. <laughs> nope. Sorry, no license there. Um, <laughs> what is it? Five seconds or ten? Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, so I am one of the new things. It's not really, it's a new thing I've picked up, but something I've been interested in for a really long time is uh, stage combat. And um, it's something I've always wanted to do since college, but my university, even though I was a theater major, they, we maybe had like two stage combat workshops and that was it. Um, so I kind of put it on my mind, uh, moved on and had a big girl job like everyone told me I should. And then during COVID, everyone's starting to like look at their life and go, huh, do I really want to do this the rest of my life? And, you know, now we're doing the what is it? The great resignation is called mm-hmm. where everyone's just leaving yep. their job going, oh, fuck it. I'm I'm done. Like, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. And yep. even one of my colleagues at my job um, resigned and said, yeah, I'm going off to be a yoga teacher now. And I was like, good for you. Like, she just left her corporate job. I was like, well, nah, I'm going to yoga it. And I was like, 
I'm so proud of you. Like, I don't know you that well, but yeah. So I'm kind of looking that route. Maybe I'll take it. Maybe I won't. I'm just kind of like up in the air. But yeah, I joined a, a local stage combat and stunt group in Southeast Michigan that I'm super excited. So the stunts was unexpected because I actually, as I'm working on stunts, I found I'm not a stunt person. I will never be a stunt person and I'm a terrible stunt person, but I like <laughs> playing with swords and I like throwing fake punches. So <laughs> yeah. So how does it work? So do, are you playing a character or is there a specific like scene that's been created that you guys are acting out and you're somebody in this like scene? Well, no, not necessarily. So, um, for example, this group meets, and this I'm just speaking from this group particularly, uh, they meet three times a week. On Tuesday nights, they'll have, like, specialty nights, and because of, you know, the time we're recording, uh, October 26th, we all know what happened last weekend, right, with Alec Baldwin. Oh, yeah. The gun misfiring. So we're taught they're talking about gun safety tonight, like in the message group. Oh, like, oh, guess what? No surprise. We're talking about this because that's part of a, uh, uh, our, yeah. you know, a weapons master's job or whatever to hit, you know, and try to figure that out. And, um, and then Thursdays is just general practice. And normally we'll start off with rapiers, which are like the long swords, the long skinny swords that like you'll see in three musketeers. Mm-hmm. Those are rapiers. And we'll do footwork and like, drills you know like uh for parrying and attacking and then um usually we'll either continue on learning a fight and the most common fight is a an up up down down fight and once you actually kind of figure out what that fight is that is the most common fight sequence used in a lot of movies and that's where i'm like watching it going like even in star wars you see lightsabers up up down down swipe and then like yeah yeah it's just like this because it's easy and it's also easy to train actors mm-hmm. so it's it's just very interesting so we get to practice different weapons different um different drills and then sometimes we move on to stunts which again i've already said i hate like rolling I can't believe how afraid I am of somersaulting on a fucking mat, but I am, and I always end up hurting my shoulder, and I'm sitting in the corner going, I'm done! I can't do it! I'm such a oh, baby. Oh my god. That's so cool, though. Like, what a cool, like, hobby to have and, like, learn more about it and then figure out, you know, like, what it can do, you know, for the, what you can do with it for the rest of your life. Like, yeah. I mean, even just in the stories we cover on this podcast, like, literally... Nothing shocks me. Nothing surprised me. Everything is possible. People have been doing it for years. All it takes is like actually making the initiative, taking the step, signing up for the thing, showing up for the class and just doing it. And then the rest is fucking history. Exactly. And, you know, I'm not going to like devote my I mean, I would like to devote a lot of my time to it. But also I have a job. So it's like, yeah, even if that doesn't work, I still have this job. And you know, I'm just letting where the wind takes me. That's so cool, though. What a fun thing to be doing. And, you know, I always think that, like, at the end of the day, you're meeting new people and you're doing new things. And that in itself is just, like, a fun part of life. Just, like, new adventures, new experiences, new people. Like, absolutely. Love it. All right. Well, are we, are you drinking? Are we drinking? Oh, we I'm drinking. I've been drinking. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Uh, since it's red wine tonight, I put mine in a sippy mug because uh-huh. I don't trust What does myself. the mug say? I was trying oh. to read it. <laughs> uh, it's it's of course because Oh, I love it. It's it's uh it's my favorite and I'm and I don't want maybe not give them all the credit, but most of the credit for the reason why I love podcast or got into podcasting. Started listening to them and I started loving them. It's the, you know, Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. 
that those two lovely murderino ladies, I'm drinking out of a sippy cup that says stay sexy and don't get murdered. So. Absolutely. And they also were the two queens that got me into podcasts. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh. So what were what are you drinking? I heard I heard there was vodka involved. Yeah, there end. is vodka involved. So I normally drink wine, but I just like I had like I have six bottles of red wine at the house, and none of them were calling to me. Mm. Is, so, is your is your is your gal Russian? Is she Catherine the Great? I'm just gonna like she's th- not. Oh, she's damn. not. <laughs> she's not Russian. And I was I usually try to like pair something with my woman and like just drop the ball this week. <laughs> You know what? It's your podcast. You can do whatever you want. So I were really slim pickings on the booze. I just had a thousand bottles of red wine and I just, we drank a bunch of red wine last night and I just was not feeling like going round two on that. Yeah. So I made a vodka with my favorite Trader Joe's. It's like a strawberry banana mango juice. And it's like a vodka, like what I would imagine, like a Mai Tai, like a rum Mai Tai, but we're using vodka today and it's, it's fantastic. That sounds tropical and lovely. It is. So maybe on the note of tropical, we are in theme with my lady today. Oh, I see you there. Uh-huh. Wasn't wasn't super planned. But I think I think you should kick us off today because last time I went first and I feel like I feel like you're up to bat. Okay, fine. Let me do a refill first and I'm gonna introduce my wine. Um I got this one. I liked the title of it and I liked the the label. It's cool. It's a red blend. It's called Beauty in Chaos, and that kind of fits in with my gal. Love it. So um, it also fits in with my gal. Oh, I love love chaotic beauty. And this woman, I had, I had never heard of her before, and it's just like something that I came across in a random article. And um, I've started a list of interesting women I want to read more about. You know, so um, and and she was one of them, and. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to introduce her because she is fan, she's fantastic. And she is like, you know, definitely a rags to riches story. You know, this woman starts as a, uh, uh, a woman who was kidnapped as a slave for, uh, sex trafficking and turns out being the, uh, the queen of the Ottoman empire. She really, Mm -hmm. Wait, so, so she was the queen prior to even being kidnapped, or she no, became no, a she, queen later? She, later, she became the queen okay, later. Um, so let me let me talk about and uh, my apologies. I I was learning Turkish and found I didn't like Turkish, so there is a <laughs> lot of mispronunciation that's going to happen here. So I'm going to do my best, and again, apologies Perfect. for all. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Hurem Salt uh, Sultan. Um, she was originally the chief consort and wife of the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. So she married a guy titled, who titled himself the Magnificent. So you're thinking, all right, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, but that is, as a wife and a consort, she's, that's just one tiny part of her resume. Because uh, Huram was one of the most influential and powerful women in Ottoman history. So let me get into her story, because... Already, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Let's yes. Uh, yeah, uh, a concubine who's a queen and mm-hmm. becomes a powerful woman. Love that shit. We love, we love that story. Yeah, so um, Hurem was born Alex- either Alexandra or Anastasia uh, sometime between 1502 and 1506 um, in Ruthenia, um, which is uh, now Ukraine. So 
this was once upon a time Ukraine, but at that point, Ruthenia was under the Polish crown. Not that that makes any difference, but for people who like historical geography, there you go. Um, and one thing that was no, even though her birth date and her name are still a little meh, nobody's really sure, everyone does kind of know that she uh, was born to an Orthodox priest. So she had a priest daddy, mm-hmm. a literal priest daddy. <laughs> um, priest daddy. <laughs> So she was uh, she was captured by Crimean uh, Tartars during a slave raid, and she was taken to Istanbul, um, where Valid Hafsa Sultan uh, selected her for his son Suleiman. Um, so this was the prince at the time. Suleiman was the prince, and the the leader Valid Hafsa said, "Hey, uh, son, here's your concubine. Have fun, enjoy." Mm-mm. Wow. And but as her time. As his concubine, she actually became his uh, favorite. And she was called the Haseki Sultan, which pretty much equates to favorite concubine in Turkish, I believe. And then, uh, after concubining for a lot of times, uh, she finally just became his wife. Um, And so, she was actually... So, European ambassadors noted that she had red hair, green eyes, and white skin. Like, that was her whole ideal. And because of her red hair, she was also known as uh, Roxelana. So she has, like, a whole bunch of different names. So it's either, like, in history, it's either going to be Alexandra or Huram or uh, Roxelana. So you see a lot of Huram or Roxelana or Rosa. I don't know, just depending on which European, which European country you're talking about. I uh, like the name Roxelana. Roxelana, yeah. So with her red locks of hair, I'm just pulling this out of my ass, and, you know, she's just... <laughs> She became Roxelana. Mm-hmm. And so it was estimated that she came into the harem because so when she got into the Ottoman Empire, she was first put into a harem at 15 years old. And uh, but no one was quite sure when she was given a Suleiman. So in between that time, the leader gave Suleiman um, Roxelana. Wait, a harem is is that a like where young girls are kept before they're like given off as concubines no a harem is kind of like like it think of it like a a, a, a whorehouse i'm okay. trying to think of a better like yeah a, a whorehouse or like you know a, a place of leisurely pleasure like okay, you know it. kind of place so that's a harem um and so she was given a solomon but um it, it is known that she was definitely around be uh around Suleiman around 1520 which is when Suleiman was like became sultan. So he, he, she was already there when he became the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And um, her name, Huram, actually comes from her personality. It means cheerful one, because uh, she was known as being joyous and playful. So let's, uh, let's like, lay it down for you. She was uh, a, uh, a concubine, which, I'm like, no disrespect, because that sounds, like, awesome. She was given to the sultan. She's beautiful. And she sounds like she's fun. Like, girl yeah. knows that she's <laughs> happy, she's fun. Yeah, she has a great time. And um, so as a, as a sultan is, what a sultan does, he has more than one concubine. So uh, there was Huram, who was one consort. And then there was another prominent consort uh, who was named Mahi Devran. Again, sorry. Um, also known as Gulabar. Those are her, like, two names. And it was rumored that Mahi Devrin and Khuram had, like, a rivalry because, of course, in history, when you have two women, 
and one man, there's got to be some sort of drama, right? But again, those are just rumors, and Turkish historians have argued against that. They're like, going, you know, I don't think it's as exaggerated as you think it is. Um, being a concubine was kind of the way of life for, so, uh, for a lot of women, and pretty much the a protected way of life. And so what good would it be to be on the bad side of the Sultan's other favorite concubine. Like, it just didn't make sense. Totally. mm -hmm. But it makes good drama. So it's what history kind of stuck with. One thing that was interesting was that Hiram was allowed to give birth to more than one son, which was a stark violation of the old imperial harem uh, rule. And that was one concubine mother, one son. So only uh, if a concubine, you know, Sultan could have as many children as he wanted with his concubines. But... And she could have as many daughters. Nobody cared about daughters, obviously. <laughs> Whatever. But sons. You can only yes. give them one son. But she gave him more. I believe she gave him five children. Like, secretly? She was no, like, pumping no, out all these more very, sons? It was very public. And that's why it was like, wait a minute. You let her give you more than one son? And because she was one of his favorites, he was like, yeah. Wait, so what was the whole hang-up on only having one son? I mean, that was the tradition. That was a harem rule. Like, you know. But what if you kept... So were people only having one child? Were, were people only producing children until they had a boy and then they stopped? Well, I think maybe, like, if a sultan was... And I'm just guessing at this point, because I don't know the inter intricate politics of harem <laughs> in the Ottoman Empire in this era. But I think, like... You would you would sleep with this woman and, you know, she could give you children and she could have a lot of, I mean, nobody was preventing or was even looked down upon if a woman uh, produced an heir for a sultan that wasn't even yeah. like frowned upon. I don't even think they were considered bastards. Again, from what I'm reading, nobody looked down on these children. They were never mm -hmm. like bastards or whatever. It was just like, I had, I had a whore. What I, <laughs> sorry, I had, I had a whore. <laughs> No, I had, I had a, uh, you know, there are so many other words for them and I don't want to keep using the word concubine and whore. That sounds awful. What's it? What's another good, I had another good, um. Like I only, the only other word I think of is like sex worker, but I, she wasn't a sex worker. She no. was she like was, a slave. Kind of? She was a slave. <laughs> I mean, yes, she was a slave, but she was a slave that she, like, she was given to Solomon as a slave but she definitely worked her magic and wielded her power in that position. Uh -huh. Like, she didn't have really any other choice. So, yes, yeah. at, for a slave from that point of view. But she made the best of what was given to her. Totally. So, a consort. There's another word for one. So, I'm going to use consort, too, because okay. I like that word. So, she was, um, she actually bore the majority of Suleiman's children. So, it wasn't just, like, one son. And, and the reason for this, actually, I did write that down. The reason for the one son thing was designated to prevent um, mo a mother's influence over the sultan. So if, like, the sultan had more than one more sons with a, a, a consort, then that woman could, in the, in the theory, she would have more control, more reign, not only over her sons, but of the sultan, which is a fair... Uh, fear because that's kind of what happened. Spoiler alert! Like <laughs> she had a lot of children, and okay. she was his favorite, so she wielded a lot of power. So the exact dates of her children are kind of disputed, but she did have five children. So they were Shazade Mehmed, 
Miriam Sultan, Shazade Abdullah, Sultan Salim II, and Shazad Bayezid. And those were like over four or five years. So they were getting busy. And she was obviously totally. very fertile. So, <laughs> And their last child, uh, Shazade uh, Sh- Gear. I think, was born a hunchback. But by that time, like, nobody really cared because uh, Huram had given Suleiman enough healthy sons to kind of secure the Ottoman dynasty. So she's safe. Her sons are safe for the most part. And so this hunchback kid, whatever, he's fine. (laughs) There's always one in these time periods. Like, (sighs) I wonder, though, like... You don't. You hear a lot about of historical hunchbacks, right? Yeah. What, what happens to the hunchbacks now? Is that like that? Are list? there any? I haven't met any. Not to say that there are, but like <laughs> it's like you feel like in history, every other person yeah. was a fucking hunchback, and I now mean, it's like once we got the hunchback of Notre Dame, it was just <laughs> it was gonna be that was just the norm now that, that there were hunchbacks. Yeah, I guess so, but. <laughs> Maybe we fixed it. Yay, modern medicine? I don't know. So. Oh, my God. So, um, Suleiman's mother, so the, the sultan, he, she died. Her name was Hafsa Sultan. She died in 1534. And after that, of course, the mom dies. So that means the favorite consort's uh, influence in the palace increased because now the, the mother, like, the, mo- the matriarch of the house is gone. So she kind of becomes the new matriarch and she took over ruling the whole harem. So now she's like the madam of the harem. Like she runs the, so, uh, you know, we started as sex slave, went to, um, you know, uh, Sultan's uh, favorite consort to run it. She's a madam. Like Mm -hmm. she runs that whole, that whole business. She's an entrepreneur. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. That is a good thing. Yeah. That is exactly what she is. And she became the only, uh, only partner of the ruler to receive the title um, Haseki, which, I, like I said, was his favorite. So the only time in history she received that title, Haseki Sultan. And when uh, Suleiman decided that he loved her so much, right, he freed her and then married her. So oh, he wow. didn't just marry her as a slave. He, like, freed her and uh, gave her name and she became Haseki Sultan as her name, and the sultan, at that point in that history, adding sultan to a woman's name or title indicated that she was part of the dynasty now. So, she is queen bitch, she's queen mother, she has, like, five sons. Don't mess with her. So, um... (laughs) Do you happen to know if, like, his family, like, was this unconventional? Was this common? Like, was this a scandal? Well, I mean, as far as the scandal goes, because uh, there, there was definitely some controversy that was whispered about, because like he said, the, the one the one consort, the one son rule, but they completely broke barriers on that one. And uh, the sultan said, nah, I like her. I'm just going to keep sleeping with her. She can give me more than one son. I don't care. Um, and I, I'm actually going to get into it, because you remember that other consort that there was rumors that like... You know, they were having a feud, like, I'm his favorite consort. No, I'm his favorite consort. Well, there was kind of like some rumored Game of Thrones shit going on about killing someone else's son in there. So I'm going to get to that. Uh Uh-huh. So in either like 1533 or 1534, you know, Suleiman married Huram in this magnificent formal ceremony. And 
Oh, yeah. And I did put in my notes, though. Never before had a former slave been elevated to the sultan's lawful spouse. Whoa. And it astonished many people in the city. They're like going, um, excuse me, wasn't she just a slave before? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, but she's really pretty. Have you seen he's her? Like, she was a really great slave. <laughs> <laughs> she was awesome. And uh, she's cheerful and joyous. So, yeah. And, um, and, you know, but I guess she also wasn't allowed to marry the sultan until the, the queen mother yeah. died. That had to happen first because I think the queen mother probably would have had big frown. Mm-hmm. Um, so she died and then she got to... She got to marry and now be the queen, essentially. <laughs> so she also, fun fact, became the first woman to remain in the sultan's uh, court for the rest of her life. So pretty much, like, not only did she get to be the consort and get to be the queen, she stuck to that position her whole life. And in the Ottoman imperial family tradition, a sultan's consort was to remain in the harem only until her son came of age which is usually around 16 or 17, after which the son would be sent away to the capital to govern a faraway province. So, like, you know, if I'm going to talk about it in Game of Thrones terminology, you know, oh, look, I just gave birth to, uh, you know, somebody, you have to go look over Winterfell, or you have to go look over, you know, a different province here. Uh, You know, you get to be the lord of that Mm -hmm. area, essentially. But, and well, and by the way, if anyone cares, this tradition was called Sanchikba Balihi. And when the sons went, the mothers followed them. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, it was one son, one mother. And when the sons went to go lord over a province, the mothers went. Mm-hmm. And at this point, too, the Ottoman Empire was, like, fucking huge. So it could span anywhere from, like, Eastern Europe, where it is now, all the way to, like, you know, the part of Asia. And I wish I had a map, but it it was... <laughs> It was big. So uh-huh. the mothers would go with them and the consorts were not to, to return to Istanbul at all, which was the province. Or I guess at that point it would have been Constantinople. Thanks for the update. Mm-hmm. They were not allowed to go back to Constantinople until their, unless their son succeeded the throne. So these little lords could still secede the throne if they were eligible and then they could come back. But that was the tradition. That was the standard. That was the custom. So, but in defiance of this custom, her sons went off to be lords and Hurem stayed behind. And even after, you know, even after they went to go govern, she was the queen. So why not just stay with your husband? She was also known as the first woman in Ottoman history to concern herself with state affairs, which is really cool. And she ha- she was known to be very intelligent and acted as the sultan's chief advisors on matters of state, which seemed to have influence upon foreign policy and international politics. Um, she frequently accompanied him as a political advisor and sat through council meetings through a wire mesh window. So, you know, she wasn't allowed to be there, but Uh she was always there listening. Through a mesh window. (laughs) Through a mesh window. You know, you can't see her, but we're just gonna pretend she's not there. Uh Yeah, it's fine. Do not pay any attention to the woman behind the curtain. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is always the most dangerous. It's the woman who isn't allowed to say anything, but has the sultan's ear. Mm, Okay. (laughs) She actually, so she started this, um, this era in the Ottoman Empire called the Reign of Women. And it was like uh, the Reign of Women, and there's a whole Wikipedia page about it, like 200 years of strong, independent women's women in leadership in the Ottoman Empire. So it's just really interesting if you want to go down that rabbit totally. hole. 
And because her, of course, her influence uh, to the Sultan was so significant, rumors circulated around that she was a witch, and she obviously bewitched him. Of like, course. yes, she bewitched him with her cunt. What of it? Like, <laughs> oh my god, it's hasn't so ridiculous. any other man in history? Like, come on. So back to remember when I said there was like some Game of Thrones rumors about like sons yep. and like that other consort. Well, this other consort, if you recall, uh, Mehidevran. She had also borne other princes. So she also kind of broke that rule because they were both the favorite. And Mahidravan's son, Mustafa, was the eldest and was supposed to be the first son in order of secession. Like, he was the oldest son. Obviously, that was supposed to go to him. And traditionally, when a new sultan rose to power, he would kind of order to kill all of his brothers to ensure that there was no power struggle. Oh like, that was a God. common practice. Um, Could and it was... you imagine? <laughs> like, how is that a common practice? It's people just the way people. it's always been, you know? You but I chop up all your brothers, adios. I mean, I guess that's also a question I have, because if they were off ruling provinces, you'd still want them ruling the provinces. So were these the brothers that didn't have a province to rule? Or, like, that's where I'm kind of like, wait a minute. The practice is weird, and it doesn't kind of make sense, but I guess if you just didn't want a power struggle, why not commit fratricide, I guess? So Mustafa, the oldest son, was supported by the Sultan's Grand Ha'afazir. And again, he kind of had the right to the throne. But Huram was usually held at least partly responsible for also naming a successor. Again, so this is like history kind of being really fucking vague. And so while Mustafa had claimed Huram as the queen was, I guess, partly responsible for naming the successor. So she wasn't going to name somebody else's son no. as the as the new sultan. And so I guess, you know, she just decided to name her own son. Yeah, she just said, uh, Mustafa, you're no longer going to be the prince. And my son will now be the <laughs> prince. <laughs> and in order to attempt to avoid any execution of her sons, you know, in this whole fratricide massacring thing that was a uh, tradition, she actually used her influence to eliminate all those who supported Mustafa's ascension to the throne. So while she didn't flat out kill Mustafa, she killed a lot of the people who said, I support his claim. So he didn't have any support to back him. Oh, shit. That was really smart. Uh-huh. So, I mean, don't kill, like, because if you kill the, the 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 kid who has the right to the throne, you're just creating a martyr, right? And, but, so kill the supporters. What does he have left? And and we're dealing with 1500s, right? The girl was fucking smart, man. Yeah. I, I just also cannot help but think how many people were murdered in the 1500s. Yeah. I mean, on top of the fact that, like, you aren't going to live long anyway because it's the 1500s, plus the fact that we're all killing each other and shit. Oh, my God. Yep. So it's nuts, man. It's definitely, like, full-on Game of Thrones massacring. Like, you, 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 like, even as a person who's sitting here in history and has all these resources, I couldn't think of coming up with all these different webs and alliances and everything. And here she is just, like... Yeah, I'm going to kill these people. What of it? <laughs> so anyway, it, even after all of uh, Mustafa's supporters were killed, um, he was actually later accused of causing unrest. So after the, the supporters were killed, 
Uh, Huram's like, okay, so now we can kind of get rid of you. We don't have, you don't have enough to support to hold you up. So Suleiman actually, um, so ordered the execution of his son during the campaign against Safirid Persia, the Safirid Persia in 1553. And so since Suleiman then became afraid of a rebellion, so he just ordered the execution of his son. And, um, According to the source, Mustafa was executed the very year on charges of planning to dethrone his father. So whoever put in the sultan's ear that, hey, your son is looking to kill you, hint, hint, his <laughs> wife did that. Um, his father's like, yeah, you don't get to, you don't get to take my place until I die, kid. So he killed him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there's like there's also just like a ton of like theories about how that went about like you know that Hordam Sultan conspired against Mustafa with the help of his daughter and son-in-law but it, like it's just so many different family members and like I'm going to reach out to this cousin and see if you can help me like yeah it's just like a whole big web of fuckery <laughs> it's what it yes. was to sum it up so um so after the death of Mustafa um, that other consort, Mahi Devren, lost her status in the palace as the mother of the heir apparent, and then she moved to Bursa, like, just later dazed and left. And <laughs> she's like, I don't trust me to be here any longer anyway. I, I wouldn't either. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's uh, again, those are based on historical predictions like none of the you know i also think that this woman was smart where she destroyed any evidence pointing it back to her so it was just a very common known fact to get uh from other european diplomats so this is where a lot of uh turkish and ottoman historians have taken this not from ottoman history itself but reading through european diplomats like papers and going Connecting the dots, going, eh, so A to B to C to she killed him mm-hmm. to what? Okay, okay, okay. So it, it's just so interesting. And in the end, though, Huram's son came into power. She's still the queen. She's the number, I mean, let's, the sultan's the number, the number one. But you, you know that quote from, uh, from uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the, have you ever seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yep. Where she's like, well, the, you know, the mom's telling her daughter that the man may be the head of the family, but the wife is the neck and directs the mm-hmm. head or at whichever way. Yeah. The sultan was totally the head <laughs> and her was totally the neck. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah. It, going forward, though, she acted as Suleiman's advisor on matters of state and had uh, a lot of uh, influence on foreign policy and international politics going forward. And during that entire time, though, overall, aside from the internal family turmoil that made family reunions super awkward, you know, um, the Ottoman Empire was generally peaceful uh, during her time as an advisor. So there wasn't a lot of warring going on then. So you got to think that woman knew what she was doing and was pretty good at it. So before you think that she's like this bloodthirsty, power-hungry monster, you know, that did all this, um, she did engage in a lot of, like, several works outside of international politics. She, like, worked on public buildings. One of her first foundations that, like, she built or, like, backed was a mosque. Um, She built two, she helped fund or was behind two uh, Quranic schools a fountain, and even a woman's hospital near the woman's slave market in uh, Constantinople. So she was like, yeah, all about building. The woman's slave market? 
Yeah. Oh so maybe she God. didn't get rid of women's slavery, but she did build a women's hospital next to it, I guess, to help the slaves. I, I don't know, but... <sighs> that is just absolutely horrific. Whole thing. Um, And she also had... um. She also established in 1552 the Hasiki Sultan Imarat, which was a public soup kitchen to feed the poor, which was said to have fed at least 500 people twice a day. Um, And she also built another public soup soup kitchen in Maka. So she, like, you know... She was doing her good goodness. She had some good deeds. She had some things. (laughs) And she was also a woman of her time. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of like she's just a very interesting human being. And... I'm actually, I was really bummed that there wasn't a lot of, like, you know, we barely get movies about historical women to begin mm-hmm. with, but, like, nothing. We Totally. As cool as Anastasia is, and I know you just did her, like, the Romanovs as well, um, if I have to hear one more goddamn Anastasia movie or TV <laughs> show, like, well, she's interesting, but there are other women out there, like Huram, who are... Totally. Yeah. Well, Anastasia was dead by 15. It's not like she did anything within that time period. Right. I mean, she was a mystery. She was an enigma and a mystery for so many years. And that's, I think, what, like, drove it and why she's yeah. so f- why people are so fascinated. But, like, there are women here who actually, totally. like, and not to say that's Anastasia's fault, the girl was murdered. That's mm-hmm. tragic and horrible. But Huram in her lifetime did so much, good and bad. <laughs> but like rose from sex slave totally. to queen of the Ottoman Empire totally. and did so much in that time. <laughs> so yeah, she she died on April 15th, 1558 and was buried in a domed mausoleum decorated in exquisite iznek tiles depicting the Garden of Paradise. And her mausoleum is adjacent to Suleiman's. Hers is, uh, you know, a Garden of Paradise and everything and his mausoleum i guess is more somber mm-hmm. <laughs> so i guess like uh, yeah she just was like all about joyful like gardens and color and yep. he's just like straight to it and stripped so and that if you ever want to go see it i guess is in the courtyard of the sulemanyi mosque so cool and that is the story of huram sutan or roxalana or alexander or Alice, whatever part of the history you want to talk to her about that bad bitch I raise a glass to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, but like one thing that just comes to mind because similar theme in my story is like how come we hear so many stories of women from like history, like history, history. I'm talking like 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, like all those centuries where we do find women who are treated as equals at times or in a capacity where like she could become queen and be a consultant to politics and shit like how is that a thing and like in my story today a woman is highly respected by a bunch of men like I I feel like there's been so many times where I've run into these women from history who were valuable to society and to other men and deemed you know great and respectable and like i feel like we don't get that anymore you know we had like one woman run for president and like the whole world had a fucking heart attack over it because we have petty little man babies who (laughs) try and you know what like even in u.s history we have a lot of women actually in our own history here in the u.s that have done some shit like good shit and 
you know, that's kind of shrugged over in history books. That completely gets erased. And it's disgusting. And then you've got, you know, women who are trying to do things now. And again, unfortunately, mostly men. Not to say that women aren't also part of the problem, but they will, like, come out and say, like, but she's a woman. And it's like... I just wonder, though, like, how in a time where there were literally female sex markets that at that same time period there could be a woman as a sex slave rise to queen and become a consultant? How do those two things exist at the same time? I believe, actually, I think it happened a lot, like, throughout the world and throughout history. It was just, it was, but also, don't forget, and as terrible as it is, because, and it's wrong... Sex trading was a profitable and huge and usually um, not just region wide, but expanded a long ways. So, yeah, it just was so common that it it was so common. And and don't forget, don't forget, profitable. That was the thing. Um, So I'm not excusing it. It's terrible, but it's just the way like if I was going to uh, pick why that was a thing. I think that's why it was a thing. <laughs> what a wild story. That is so cool and interesting. I even, when you had said at some port, some part in your story to look up women of the Ottoman Empire, I literally just Googled women of the Ottoman Empire, and there is at least 25 people that popped up on this list instantly through Google. Yeah, there are so many fascinating women, especially in this era and this time, and since the Ottoman Empire, like barely exists it's been shrunk down to right. kind of like all of its history is now in, in encased in turkey and but it's it's rich and it has so much and we also and this is where I, I could stand on my soapbox and complain that the u.s you know we only care about the u.s nothing happens in history outside of us like the world didn't exist before christopher columbus <laughs> discovered us you know there was england and then there was us and it's uh-huh. like, uh-huh, Africa's one big giant continent that has no discernible features other than it's Africa. Like, that's just, unfortunately, that's how the U.S. public school system is. That's how we're always taught. And that's why I love your podcast, because it's like, <laughs> serious. It's just like, you've got other, like, I was listening to your um, Winnie Mandela episode, and damn, that was an eye-opener, you know? So, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, fuck. Not just uh, Nelson Mandela's wife, but... Other things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she she had a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, that was one of our... I think that was one of our Villainess episodes. Yes, it was. Yes, yes. it was. So was like, it was our villain, first one, I think. Give it to me. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which you would never think Nelson Mandela's wife would be a villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Now that I, I, I talked about my badass bitch, who's your badass bitch this week? Okay, so I am covering another fierce-ass queen. Yeah. Her name is Commander Lee Weiwei. Hawaii. And no, she's oh. Filipino. Oh. And so she is a Filipino guerrilla commander who was one of the leaders of the Hook Rebellion, which okay. I had never heard of until I researched her. I didn't know anything about the Hook Rebellion. To be honest, I didn't know shit about Philippine history. That's the American education for you, sister. Literally didn't know a goddamn thing, even to the point where I was like reading through her story and I was like, 
why does she have like a Hispanic name? And I didn't even know that the Philippines was a Spanish colony Mm -hmm. for way longer than Mexico was a Spanish colony. Now, see, I didn't know that. That's cool. Way longer. Like, when I think about Spain ruling Mexico, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. And it's like, sure, it was a thing. But, like, they actually ruled the Philippines, like, way fucking longer. (sighs) Which is why so many people in the Philippines have, like, what I would think as a Mexican woman, Mexican last names. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's just, I can't believe I never knew this. And then I looked up a couple more fun facts, and apparently the name of the Philippines comes from the King of Spain, Philip II. It, like, it was literally named after the King Philip II. Okay. And... A Spanish explorer, explorer whose name was Rui Lopez Villalobos, he named the islands Los Islas Filipinas after the King Philip II. King yeah. or Felipe? Fil- Is Philip, it Philip? Fil- I don't. I don't. Felipe? One or the other. I Felipe, mean, Philip, one of them. Philip's <laughs> Islands, essentially, is what you're saying. But how? Like, I did not know that. So, uh, okay. super interesting. So, like. We're calling her Commander Liwewei, but her born name was Remedios Gomez Pariso, which right off the bat, I was like, oh, my God, that's such a Hispanic name. Like, what in the world? And then I just kept reading. I'm like, I'm so confused. So that's why I looked it up. I was like, how in the world is the Philippines connected to Mexico? Because something's happening here. (laughs) Wow. So technically not Mexico. It was New Spain was the actual name of it, which later became Mexico. But, um, yeah, little fun fact, if anybody else out there di- also did not know that. I don't know if that's just a me thing. But, yeah, I learned I learned a lot in this episode. We are talking today about Commander Liwewei, also known as Remedios Gomez Pariso. And she was born in 1919 in the Philippines. So she's so for a the- recent lady compared yeah, to mine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Um, but throughout, like... The first half of this story, I'm going to refer to her as her original born name, and then she switcheroos it later on. So um, she'll be, I'll be calling her Remedios throughout the beginning. So her father, whose name was Basilio Gomez, he was super loved among the peasants in their village in the Philippines where they lived. And he was loved so much that he eventually became their mayor. And naturally, their family was like bigger league in the village. They were very well known because the dad was mayor of the town. So she, as a child, grew up really supporting her family. She sold rice to help them make money. I mean, because even though he was mayor, they still lived in a poor village in the Philippines. So they were, didn't have like tons of money. So she was working as a child selling rice. She also sold dresses that she made and hand embroidered herself. So she was out there working the fucking corporate world. She was doing the gig economy <laughs> yes. before the gig economy was cool. Oh, yeah. And, you know, other than that, she was your everyday young 
girl child. She loved dancing. She was a big singer. She was obsessed with perfume and makeup. And she was always putting on like colorful costumes and dresses and dancing around town. So she had like a big personality, really kind of a girly girl. And she ended up growing up to become a very, very beautiful woman. Like I am saying her beauty was the talk of the town. She was a beauty queen. So her her born name, I mean, you can Google her known name. It's Kumander, K-U-M-A-N-D-E-R, Liwayway, L-I-W-A-Y-W-A-Y. Okay. There's very few pictures of her on the internet. But I mean, like two photos of her exist that I could find. Damn, but that girl looks, she's amazing. Yeah. She was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the townspeople were just like, Oh, my God. She's the beauty queen of our nation. And so she was just well known for her beauty. And she also loved beauty. She loved makeup. She loved dressing up. She loved doing her hair. She just was a natural born beauty queen. And so all was well in life over there in the Philippines until the Huck Rebellion began. And I'll tell you a little bit of backstory of how that happened. So in 1941, Japan invaded the Philippines shortly after they attacked Pearl Harbor, which I also did not know this. And the invasion forced the Philippine military to surrender because they just like could not even handle what was happening. But the Filipino people, a.k.a. not the military, the everyday people out there living their lives, Refused to surrender. Oh, good. They were just like, fuck this. <laughs> Brave and maybe a little stupid, but good for them. Yeah. Correct. <sighs> so uh, they they were like, all right, the Japanese is invading. Um, We don't care. So they started to boss the fuck up. And with them bossing the fuck up is how the Huck Rebellion began. And so Huck Rebellion is shorthand for... Again, just like you, I'm probably going to butcher a lot of these pronunciations. Hakabalahap Rebellion, which is named for the Tagalog acronym of another very long word I'm going to fuck up. Hakbo Ningabayan Laban Sahapan. Perfect. <laughs> which translates to People's Anti-Japanese Army. Okay. So they literally created a civilian army in order to fight off the J- Japanese invasion. And they called themselves the Hooks, and it became the Hook Rebellion. So while the Hooks were building up their resistance group, Remedios's father was doing the same thing in their own little village. But as he was, like, forming this group and, like, you know, word had spread, like, we're all going to fight, we're all going to fight. So all the little villages were sort of creating their own mini Hook groups, Her father was doing that, and as he was building this, he ended up getting betrayed by a fellow Filipino person in the village, and he ended up getting captured by the Japanese before he could, like, really make any movement within his Hook Rebellion group. So, like, maybe they were, like, chatting around town, seeing who was interested, but, like, nothing really caught up to speed before he was captured, which, like... I think is important to note before I get to the next part of what's about to happen because he basically accomplished nothing. Like no group was formulated. They hadn't made any action. No plan was made. It was like the beginning rumblings of like, hey, you guys, we should do this. He was captured 
by the Japanese. He was paraded down the street in chains all the way to the village town square. Once they reached the town square, they tortured him in public in front of everybody, and then they executed him and hung his body up on display for everyone to see it. So the Japanese aren't fucking around, pretty much. They are not fucking around at all. Mm -hmm. And again, her dad, like, hadn't even really done anything yet. (laughs) Like, he had maybe, like, brought a couple of the homies from the way to, like, hang out at the bar and chat about, like, yo, how are we going to pull a group together? And that was, like, the extent of it. And that is the punishment that he got for that teeny tiny little thing that he had done. So it was obviously not cool in the Philippines right now. (laughs) Like, people were not settled. No one was feeling good when they woke up every day. It was uh, bad vibes. I mean, I feel like public torture and execution (laughs) definitely isn't a motivation builder. Like, I, yeah. Yep. So uh, this power move by the Japanese was a massive warning to the rest of the Filipino people to stand the fuck down or end up like your mayor. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure they did just that, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Remedios witnessed her father's death. She saw it, as did her mother and the rest of her siblings, because it was what was happening in their town square. Mm -hmm. And it was horrific, obviously. And following this event... Remedios, her mother, and her seven siblings fled because they were like, we got to fucking skip town. This is not okay. They went to a place that was called the province of Tarlac and uh, really just ran away there in fear that they were about to be executed next. So they were just kind of like hiding out. And in this place that they ran off to, they met up with a friend of their father, so they knew somebody who lived there and were, like, able to, like, run out there and kind of stay, like, undercover for a while. But this father was part of the hooks. And when he brought them into their home, he basically informed Remedios about this group of rebels that he had joined called the Hooks, which is their abbreviated name, and that they were a newly formed communist guerrilla mo- movement. So he's telling her all about, like, what this group is. Like, hey, by the way, this is what your dad was, like, planning to do. We're doing it here. This is the plan. We're going to fight the Japanese. She got the whole story and was like, I'm in. Like, how do I get in? How do I get jumped in? How do I sign up? (laughs) Yeah. She jumped at the chance to join this group because she had one goal, which was to avenge her father's death. So... At 22 years old. How is there not a movie about her already? Like, I'm just feeling like, where's the movie? It's such an action-packed film already. I know. It could even be a Disney movie. Yeah, I'll take it. She could be a Disney princess. You can't just have, like, two Disney, Asian Disney princesses. Okay, we gotta have more. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Lee Weiwei could totally end up a Disney princess. Please. Um... Especially, uh, I know where you're going with this because uh-huh. I'm also like, <laughs> sorry, I looked at her Wikipedia page and I see like some of her titles her here or notes. what she's known. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, what she's known for, which yep. I'm already hating, but also this could be used in. Anyway, go on. So, yeah. So, she, at 22 years old, with absolutely zero military training, she joined the Hook Rebellion to fight against the Japanese. 
So right when she joined, Remedios was given a new name, which was Li Weiwei. And her first military job when joining the group was with the medical team where she tended to the wounded and the sick. But she was quickly promoted from that. And she became squadron commander once it was clear that she had a really intense fighting spirit. So, how old was she at this point? I'm sorry. 22. 22. Zero military training. Looking at my life originally right now. specialized in embroidering dresses, singing and dancing. Okay. Okay. So, after this happened, after she got her promotion, she was given the full name of Commander Li Weiwei, and she began overseeing nearly 200 soldiers. And she led them on dangerous missions to rescue American pilots that had been shot down from the Japanese, I guess, and to steal guns and supplies from the Japanese enemies. So this brings me to the question I asked you earlier is like, how in the world? We're talking on in your story, 1500s. Right now we're in, what, the early 1900s, yeah. that this young woman with no military experience and only known for her beauty and her interest in dresses is now a military leader overlooking 200 men on dangerous missions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who cares? That would never happen today. That would yeah. never happen today. What women, like, that would never happen today. <laughs> like, I just. Yeah, but I, not here. Doesn't <laughs> happen here. True. In America, that would not happen. Uh-huh. Unless maybe we're talking about, like, <laughs> QAnon or some fucking no, conspiracy we're army. No, not talking about that. <laughs> no. But, yeah, as you're saying, you've got all the, these boss-ass bitches in history throughout the world and, like... Um, Where people respected them and thought of them, you know, in a way that, like, they weren't just shitty old women. They could actually be thoughtful and knowledgeable and have fighting spirits and be deemed as the right leader for the right group of men. Like, and people were ate it up. I mean, they were like, yeah, you're right. She is the right person for this. It blows my mind. So it wasn't long before Commander Li Weiwei proved herself in battle. But the funny thing, well, this is what's noted about her in history. And I'm talking, I have feminist history books. This is where I got her story. And they still coin this about her in a prideful way. Is that before she ever hit the battlefield, she never jumped on the war field before applying a spritz of perfume, some fresh nail polish, and bright red lipstick. Girls gotta look good <laughs> to kill some assholes is what, yeah. Which, uh, like, part of me is like, in what world is somebody putting on nail polish before they're going out to battle to kill people? But, yeah, but but she is who she is. Like, you could still be a commander badass woman and still want to look and totally. feel good about yourself. But, you know, to kind of piggyback off of that because I you know this started when I wanted to see a picture of her and then I went to her Wikipedia page and it's disgustingly sparse by the way totally uh, yeah and but the, of course the first sentence in the gorilla section is Li Weiwei was known for dressing formally and wearing lipstick red lipstick into battle <laughs> like what really that's the first sentence out of everything she's done yep god fuck off yeah yep so according to a biography which was written by her younger brother Andrew. So he wrote a biography about his sister. And this was a quote from her biography written by her brother. Quote, her appearance inspired her men and motivated them to fight harder. 
Wow. She, historically written, she knew that the men were into her. And she knew that she could boost their morale and get them hyped up to fight in battle for her if she dolled herself up a little bit and battered her eye and, you know, like, lifted the skirt and showed, like, the shin. Where, where's my, where's that sink? You know how they have those sink candles that you can, like, light <laughs> yeah. for RBG and Lizzo? Where's, where's my Commander Liwewe <laughs> one? I want... I I want to light a sink candle to her yes. because she's, oh, yes. So what's so funny, which I is a, literally a line out of this book by Gone Badass and Broads, she wrote, the author wrote in here, the one time in history that sexism paid off for a woman was when Commander Liwewe used her beauty to her benefit by allowing sexism to play its role and she batted her eyes and she put on her eyeshadow and spritzed her perfume and did a little flirt here and there and the men ate it up as they would and in turn they were absolutely loyal to her dedicated to her and were willing to fight to fucking death to win against the japanese if and only if she was their leader so she used her uh, feminine beauty and sexism to her power, and it paid off. Throughout Li Weiwei's time as a guerrilla commander, she fought face-to-face with the Japanese on numerous occasions, and she often used their own weapons to fight them because she would steal weapons from, like, other Japanese, like, groups and stuff or out of the hands of just, like, cold, dead bodies. So she was using their own weapons to kill them in battle. Be ashamed and, to waste all this artillery on right? dead bodies. <laughs> right? And it's even said that she would often ride on a horse into occupied towns all by herself. Or if she had people, it'd be like a handful of soldiers with her, but like no massive force ready to fight. And she'd show up into these occupied towns and warn the Japanese to leave or to face the rage of the hooks. The next day. Look, I'm (laughs) seeing this in a camera angle already. Like, I have this whole scene in my head. It's not that hard to do. Right. It's it's fun and it's venturous. It's, like, daring. Oh, totally. I mean, we already, like, the whole story, the entire Disney movie is here right now. I've just basically written it for everybody and all they have to do is, like, cast the the characters. Exactly. (laughs) So she had one pretty infamous fight and it took place at the Battle of Kaman... Kamenansi and the hooks. So when this was happening, the hooks, which were there like lots of little hook groups, but they were all like one large group. They'd be like off doing their own things at times. So a few of them were like very outnumbered and they were getting their asses kicked in this battle. And so their commanding officer of this group that was getting their asses kicked basically was like, we have to retreat. We're not going to win this. Like, let's get the fuck out of here. And so they took off, but Li Weiwei and her men were still there. And they were like, well, we're going to hold down the fort. We're not leaving. So they held their positions and they kept fighting and they kept fighting and they kept fighting. And eventually, like, other Filipino reinforcements arrived to, like, save them from this, like, treacherous battle. But when they showed up, she was fucking fools up and her men were fucking fools up and it turned out that they didn't need any rescuing at all. <laughs> oh my god. That's awesome. So she pretty much defeated this battle when many other hook groups 
retreated and said, like, we give up. We're not going to do this. She stayed and her and her men ended up killing so many Japanese people and they won not Japanese people. They killed so many Japanese soldiers, invaders, yeah. um, and they ended up winning. And so that's like her most famous memory from her time on the battlefield. Um, but she is also famous for having challenged a fellow Hook commander to a duel because this motherfucker basically had some beef to spit and told her that, hey, by the way, one day you're probably going to get captured by the Japanese, but because you're pretty, I would suggest that you just lay down and spread your legs and let them have their way with you. I was going to say, please let him be a sexist pig. Please let him be a sexist pig. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he said that, which I'm probably sure like at this point, especially after she had her like infamous battle where she just fucked everybody up when all the other fools bailed they probably like within her own hook rebellion i bet fools probably started to get like jealous that she was just like kicking ass and taking names and she was the woman that was doing it he's so the comment made her so fucking mad like she was pissed she was not happy with this it made her so mad that she attacked this dude Tried to get him into a duel, but she went, like, so nuts that she had to be physically restrained from other men in order to not just, like, straight kill him right there in the duel. They had to hold her back. So she was not okay with that. And, in fact, unsurprisingly, she received many, 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 many sexually aggressive comments Mm. during her time in the Hook Rebellion. And... They were from the Japanese, her enemies, the Japanese enemies, and her own people, which I'm not surprised about at all from what I just said. But ultimately, she's quoted to say that, like, it fueled her. I mean, she didn't she didn't quote verbatim say it fueled my fire, but she was like. In her perspective, these constant sexually aggressive comments made from all the men around her just, like, really got her more angsty and more ready to just, like, ruin people's lives. And it it helped in a sense. Like, of course, it was horrible. But, like, when you're on the battlefield and your only job is to kill people, when people start popping off and saying shit, I mean, you just only want to kill people more. (laughs) I mean, just hearing about (laughs) it feels my fucking fire. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So, she, it just made her more cutthroat and more gnarly in battle. So, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Mm. But eventually, during battle, Li Weiwei stumbled upon a man that she had recognized. This is the man that she'd been searching for for a very, very, very long time. And she finally found him. It was the man that killed her father. So uh, she had remembered this man's face from the town square and she had told herself that day, I will never forget this face because I'm going to look for it every fucking day to avenge my father's death. And so this whole time that she's on the battlefield fighting, every time she kills a man, she pulls up his hair to look at his face to see if it's homeboy. That's some serious Arya Stark energy. And I know I keep going back to Game of Thrones, (laughs) but fuck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She looks at every man that she faced on the battlefield to see if it's homeboy. And it hadn't been all this time until it was. So she found him. And when she found him, this man 
knew he was caught. Like, I don't know if he in- instantly knew that, like, oh, my God, this is the daughter of the man I tortured and killed in the town square or if she had to tell him. But eventually, like, it clicked and he knew he was fucked. So he was, like, cowered off into the corner begging for mercy as she stood over him, smiling down, flashing her pearly whites with her bright red lipstick. And she did not kill him in that moment. What she did was she got her men, rounded them up, and it said, take this man away, but keep him alive. Uh-huh. We technically never find out what happens next, huh. but I think it's safe to assume that she had her way with him as he had had his way with her father. That, oh, what? That's also just great storytelling right there. Thank you. Mwah. Love it. <laughs> I'm so intrigued. Like, I must know. But also, I don't want to know. But also, oh, we don't know. We don't I know. I read multiple accounts of, like, like, verbatim what happened, and we don't know. We just know he was found alive. He was taken away by the men and kept somewhere, and she had her way with him later. And no one ever heard from him again. <laughs> That's right. Got a, she's got a Ramsey Snow his ass. Sorry. Again, I just was like, oh, my mind. Your name will disappear. Your house uh-huh. will disappear. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. So throughout the Hook Rebellion, the Hooks as a group and as individuals grew to 15,000 armed fighters, with 10% of them being women. Remember, these are just civilians. The army gave up. So the civilians, 15,000 of them, joined forces to fight 10% of this group being women. So mind-blowing. But in addition to fighting the Japanese, the hooks, in addition to fighting the Japanese, they also kind of like went a little a like AWOL for a minute because like, I mean, there were 15,000 of them and they'd been like killing people for a while now. Okay, question though. <laughs> Can you be AWOL if you're actually just a civilian <laughs> army? <laughs> That's just a- <laughs> I guess not. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> no. Uh, I guess they did exactly what would make sense. Yeah. Um, but they uh, they started fighting against other guerrilla organizations, and they also began fighting against the new government, which was the Philippine Democracy, which was working aside or was working alongside the Americans who also wanted the hooks arrested because they were communists. Yeah, that tracks. So uh, Americans came in, changed a bunch of shit up. Didn't and then like they were the like, dirty, dirty commies. Yeah. Nope. You hooks are, are radical. We need to arrest you all. So the hooks ended up fighting against the new government, which was dominated and ruled and changed by the American forces. So that started happening and shit really hit the fan for a while. And there was like full blown wars where a lot of like actual civilians that were not the hooks were getting killed and in crossfire and it was not good. So eventually the hooks retreated into the mountains and they chilled up there for a while to like let things burn off. But like eventually, uh, somehow I don't know if they came down from the mountains or people went into the mountains to get them, but Commander Liwei was captured in 1947, and she was charged with rebellion, sedition, and ins- 
insurrection. But her arrest made her even more famous than she already was. Oh, hell yeah. Because she gave an ovation-worthy speech following the president's statement that the hooks were terrorists, which she replied, quote, No, Mr. President, you are wrong. We are fighting for a decent livelihood. 99% of us are peasants, so I cannot see why the hooks would terrorize their own families. We, the hooks, champion the rights of the peasants. End quote. I mean, yeah. She's saying this war are the civilians of the Philippines. We aren't against anybody. We're it. <laughs> like, like we're the people. Like, I mean, who anybody we- who, like, did a five minutes of research before they came here could have <laughs> told you that. Like, Yes. So after she, like, literally, like, publicly made this statement out loud, the media ate it up. They ran it in the news. It was everywhere. She became this, like, wild icon. And because she just made that public statement, she was punished with solitary confinement for I don't know how long, but she was eventually released since there was not enough evidence to keep her behind bars. Because she... I mean, they didn't really have anything on her other than you talk shit to the president and we think you might have, like, fucked some Japanese people up who literally invaded our country. Well, don't forget, she wears red lipstick in a battle. Oh, yes, of course. Uh But, like, that's the thing that they, like, hello, they invaded us, the army gave up, and we stepped up to the plate. How are we the bad people here? But, I mean, it did get a little, like, it, like, really went to the extreme for a period of time. So I can see where they were kind of like, okay, we'll, we were cool with you fucking up the Japanese, but now you're, like, kind of getting, like, fucky with us, too, the new government. So, like, we won't have it. <laughs> but anyway, she got released from prison, and she continued working with the Hook Rebellion until she could no longer endure fighting anymore. Like, she got older in age, and she's like, okay, I literally can't do this anymore. So she ended up retiring from the Hook life. She got married and gave birth to a son. But sadly, her dreams of living a normal life came to a halt when her husband was killed in a raid by the Phili- by the Philippine constabulary. Constabulary? Constabulary. <laughs> and shortly after this, she was arrested again. Jesus Christ. So when she was arrested again, it was largely because her husband was really affiliated with this, like, second wave hooks who were way more extremists than the originals. So she kind of got tied into all his, like, crazy stuff he was doing on the sidelines that was more radical. But um, when she was put on trial, she claimed that she was innocent. And again, I'm going to quote the book and this author because this is what the author called out in the story. But she claimed she was innocent because as a simple woman, she was just (laughs) supporting her husband in the fight and couldn't possibly be held responsible for his actions. Which again worked in her favor and is another point in history where sexism won. Oh, I am just but the mother of his child. All I do <laughs> is cooking clean and I don't know anything. You think he confides in me? His dumb, stupid, silly wife? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I. she gets an Oscar for that one. Like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yup. 
So her argument won and she was acquitted. And um, after her second arrest, she did not go back to war. Like for real this time, she did not go back to war. But instead, she became an advocate for soldiers who had returned home after being in the war. And she became very vocal about the contribution of Filipino women that were in the war, that 10% that were part of the Hook Rebellion. And so as part of this group, which was called the Hook's Veteran Organization, Lee Weiwei lobbied for pensions for the soldiers for more than 20 years which was, like, one of the things she was, like, heavily advocating for. And then eventually she settled into civilian life. She lived to the ripe old age of 95. And she died in 2015 of a heart attack. That was, uh, let me check, uh, six years ago. Only six years ago. Is that not nuts? Six years ago she died. So by the time the Allies had liberated the Philippines, which happened in September 1945, it is said that over 260,000 Hook guerrillas were still fighting the Japanese occupation. They had gone from, what what did I say, 15,000 before they grew to 260,000 people fighting the Japanese occupation. Yeah, fuck yeah. Again, not a government military. Civilians in peasant civilians in villages joined their own fucking army of 260,000 and fought the Japanese. Stop. Stop. <laughs> so Commander Li Weiwei may not have been the most traditional military leader among the Hook rebels, but she sure as hell was an effective one. And she pretty much became a legend in Filipino history, and she ultimately changed the way that women were viewed in the country overall. And that's her story. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> clap, clap, clap for you. Wild. Clap, clap, clap for Commander Liwaway. Like, thank right. you for bringing her to our attention. Like, who would have thunk it? Who would have known? Wild, right? I love it. And again, we're talking about a 22-year-old girl who had zero military training experience and joined the war, the rebel war, with one one goal to avenge her father's death. And not only did she succeed that, but she became so much more than just that. Adding this to my uh, my <laughs> ideas of novels I will never start. Yes. <laughs> Look, if Disney won't do it, somebody's gotta. I know. So totally phenomenal. What? And again, how much did I just tell you about her life right now? And how little was there written in Wikipedia? That is, it's it's really insulting. (laughs) So insulting. Yep. Right. And uh, well, in uh, uh, it it says in Wikipedia, and I'm not disputing you. I'm disputing Wikipedia. In 2014, she died at the age of 95, a cardiopulmonary arrest, and that's it. That's all we got for her death. Oh, she could. She might have. She might have. Di- I could have gotten the dates wrong. Oh. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> seriously, though, like, okay, one year off. <laughs> Still, this amazing woman lived in my lifetime and I did not know about her. Yeah. Oh, right. It hurts me. It's it. She has two paragraphs on her life. 
in Wikipedia. So, you know, like, before she joined, like, this army thing, like, she had a dad and he, like, died or something, and then she went off to war. Those are her two paragraphs. Great. Oh, man, it's wild. Well... That those are our two women, both totally fierce. Again, that's what I was saying. Like, ha- just the fact that both of us covered women who had like left us such a huge stamp in history and were also leaders. I mean, they were leaders of not, I mean, men and women. They were, they were well respected, they were looked up to, and people, you know, followed their word. Yep. And that is so unlikely. And it's just mind-blowing that in 1500 and early 1900s, this was a thing in other countries, and it was normal. And, I mean, for the most part, there weren't a lot of people opposed to it. Or I think the most important one is, like, the people who were opposed to it and wrote those history books or, you know, were the ones who were, like, opted to leave this out or just give it, like, you know, she, you know, Commander Liwawe had only, like, an asterisk or she was, like, a, what, a footnote in history, in Filipino history or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's such a bummer. And that's also, like, not to, uh, you know, and I will. I will put so much um, pressure on, you, you've got all these great content creators in the world out there who, like, writers and producers and everything who have the ability to bring these stories to the forefront, whether it be fictionalized or not, like, or, or just even bios and memoirs, like, at least give me a name so I can, like, go, hey, maybe I should go look them up on Wikipedia or something. And the fact that right. I never had to. And I, and I wish I could remember where I first heard the name Haram Satan because I made a note of that and goes, she sounds mm-hmm. interesting. Let me make a note of that and read back on her later. I do that. And I like doing that. So I want more women that I can think about, like, going, yeah, I want to read about her. I want a movie. I want I want a dramatized right. TV series about her life. Thank you. Like, that's... That's it. So it's it's so cool. It's so fascinating. And it's pretty cool. It's so cool. Well, yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. I of loved course. it. Yeah. Thank, thank, uh, thank this lady for sharing her story. Mackenzie Lee. I need to look her up. I need to start looking up all the authors that write these books I read. Um, have you ever heard of a, a kind of what Mackenzie Lee's book reminded me of and um, was Anne Shen's? Uh, you've seen Anne Shen. Yeah, you know Anne Shen. Uh, yeah. I know Anne Shen. I know you know Anne Shen. I don't know why I'm like, uh, like, do you happen to know Anne Shen? Yes, of course you do. Uh, so yeah, that's what it reminds me of. And so, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's that. That's, that's, that's that. Well, thank you for letting me be on your show yet again. Of course. I loved it. This was fun. Of course. You're welcome back anytime. Oh, don't, 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 don't threaten because I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll come back on again. Just please do. Just just come back. Come back. I know you got that list of women. Just bring them on. That's it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. I hope you loved learning about the women in today's episode. And I hope you felt really inspired by their super incredible and courageous lives. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform so you can receive new episodes the moment that they drop. And as always, share this podcast with your best friends. If you know people out there in the world that would love to learn about all of these incredible women we cover on the show, let them know about the podcast. Send them your favorite episode, share my posts on social media, and spread the Mimosa Sisterhood word. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye.